everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd, I'm the Digital Media Editor at Heart, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Enrico Ferro and Dr. Duruf Kazi from the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Today we're discussing a paper that these two authors have written along with Dr. Liu, the third author on the paper, which is all about cost-effectiveness and affordability of new cardiovascular treatments and how we go about evaluating new treatments for cost-effectiveness and how new drugs are priced both in the USA and worldwide. I hope you enjoyed this really interesting conversation. So what I might do uh, as means of an introduction is just ask you to introduce yourselves. Where do you work and what do you do? Perhaps if we can start with you, Dr. Ferro. Uh, my name is Enrico Ferro. I am originally from Italy, but I've done my medical training in the U.S. In fact, I just finished my internal medicine residency at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And in fact, tomorrow I will be starting my cardiology fellowship at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, uh, both teaching hospitals of Harvard Medical School in Boston. And uh, in addition to the clinical work, uh, since my time in medical school, I've been fortunate to work under the mentorship of Dr. Kadzi and other academic cardiologists at the Smith Center for Outcomes Research in Cardiology, affiliated with the Beth Israel Deaconess, where we use a combination of real-world evidence from nationwide clinical registries or claim databases and clinical trial data to evaluate the impact of new medications, new devices, or new healthcare policies on uh, cardiovascular outcomes. And Dr. Kazi, can you give us a bit of background on yourself? Yeah, I'm a, a, an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and the associate director of the Smith Center for Outcomes Research. Um, I'm a general cardiologist with a focus on cardiac intensive care, and my area of research focuses on health economics and healthcare value. And I really wanted to talk to you both about a recent cardiology in focus paper which is entitled Cost-Effectiveness and Affordability of Novel Cardiovascular Therapies, What Physicians Need to Know. I think this is an, an area that is um, historically, I would say, almost like a black box to, to practicing cardiologists and probably many other doctors as well. And I really found the article of, of great personal interest in how we think about you know, the impact of new medicines on society, how we price new medicines, how affordable new medicines are. Um, maybe I can start by asking you what prompted you to write this paper. So our primary objective in writing this paper um, really is to provide a practical introduction to the fundamental concepts in the area of cost effectiveness. Clinicians, especially in cardiovascular medicine, are accustomed to uh, understand and apply routinely the evidence of clinical trials to inform shared decision making with their patients. But at the same time, uh, I think that we as clinicians have a responsibility to patients and to the broader society to understand and ensure that the increased efficacy of a novel medication justifies its higher cost compared to the standard of care. This is important now more than ever as new cardiovascular, oncological, and other drugs, uh, they continue to enter the market at quite high costs. So it's important to understand these fundamental concepts behind cost effectiveness. And that's truly is the motivation and the goal of our piece uh, to offer this practical understanding of the key terminology. And we do so um, using free case studies, uh, tafamidis for cardiac amyloidosis, PCSK9 inhibitors or hyperlipidemia, and uh, direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs for atrial fibrillation. 
the goal is not just to empower the clinician to with the skills to understand these studies, but also to complement their skill set with the knowledge um, to take into consideration the economic priorities of their patients and further refine the shared decision making to make sure that novel medications are reaching the patients most likely to benefit from them. And can you give us any more background into this area, uh, Dr. Kazi or Dr. Farrow? Yeah, the idea uh, of cost effectiveness is that in our personal lives, we make decisions when we're purchasing something new and expensive, we decide is the value I'm getting out of this new product or service worth the money I'm spending? And a similar concept can be applied to bigger purchases as a society, such as high cost medications. Um, the background uh, is that there is an opportunity cost. Any money we spend on um, medications cannot be spent in other parts of the health system or even in broader societies, such as national parks or whatever else that is uh, important to us as a society. And so can rather than making ad hoc decisions about which medications are worth purchasing and which should uh, we should forego, can we use a systematic framework uh, to decide whether something's value, the value it generates in terms of healthcare, justifies its costs. And maybe we can start by by running through or having you guys run through some definitions. So you mentioned several terms in the paper, uh, cost benefit analysis affordability, budget impact, and quality. Could you uh, take those one at a time and, and walk us through the definition uh, of those terms? Sure, uh, I'll start um, perhaps with cost benefit, uh, going down the, the list. Um, cost benefit or cost effectiveness, we're gonna use this term um, in a generic way right now to refer in general to any study that is linking cost with outcomes. The first fundamental concept that I want to share with our audience is that whenever we talk about the clinical benefit and the cost of a new medication, we're always making a comparison. We're comparing it to something else, but something else usually is a standard of care. Now, if you allow me to dive a little bit more into the details, when it comes to cost effectiveness, uh, the first important term to define is a so-called incremental cost effectiveness ratio or ICER. As the name suggests, it's a ratio. So we have cost at the numerator and some sort of measure of effectiveness or outcome in the denominator. When it comes to cost, the other important clarification I would like to make is that we're talking about, again, cost of a new therapy compared to the cost of the alternative or standard of care. And we're talking about total cost. What do we mean by that? Certainly the cost of the medication itself, which is non-trivial with these new and expensive medications, but also all downstream expenses that are associated with that treatment. So that could include, for example, the cost of monitoring a patient on the new medication or on the old one, uh, the cost of identifying or managing side effects. Um, importantly, for a, the cost of potential increased healthcare utilization that may be generated by the prolonged survival that's offered by the new medication but also cost saving. If for example, the new medication reduces a major advanced cardiovascular events, hospitalizations, and so on. So that's the numerator when it comes to cost. Uh, perhaps Dr. Kazi, um, should we talk about the denominator and, um, and what that entails? Great, so uh, that's a good summary. So cost is total comprehensive cost incorporating any savings that might result from averted events. And then the denominator is outcomes, uh, which might be number of heart attacks averted or number of strokes averted, 
or often more uh, a more comprehensive measure of outcomes known as a quality or quality adjusted life year. And the idea is it combines both the quality of life ranging from zero, which is death, and one is perfect health, as well as the survival. So if you spend two years at 0.8 quality of life, you get 1.6 quality of life, uh, quality adjusted life years or qualities. And what this does is it allows us to capture the benefit of agents that increase survival and or improve quality of life. So the incremental cost of effectiveness ratio is how much more do I pay for every additional quality that the new therapy or device generates? And it's compared with some system, systemic threshold. Um, it, we In the US, we've used um, a threshold of 100 to $150,000 per quality. So if I can generate one additional quality adjusted life year for that incremental cost, then perhaps it's considered cost effective. Many of the European um, societies and in the UK, there are more explicitly defined thresholds. But regardless, the idea is if you can generate a quality from for less money than what is considered the conventional threshold, then the therapy is considered cost effective. And how about affordability and, and budget impact? Because these are also terms that I used throughout your piece, which uh, I found um, uh, very clear after I'd read your piece, but I had a hazy understanding before I went ahead and did that. Can you give us a, some more information about those two, uh, Enrico? Yes, absolutely. Uh, these are important terms, and thank you for these important questions. Uh, when it comes to affordability, we shall always ask, well, we're thinking about whether this medication is affordable, but to whom? So who is a stakeholder that we have into consideration? And we uh, describe in the paper two important stakeholders. The first one being patients. How can we think about affordability for patients? Well, effectively for patients, affordability boils down to the out-of-pocket cost. So the expenses that they face on a monthly or yearly basis to be able to afford the medication. We make some examples uh, for our case studies. So if we think about a new medication like tefamidis for cardiac amyloidosis, that entered the market in 2019 at a cost at a, with a price tag of $225,000 per year. Well, uh, we can think about how this medication can be affordable for a patient. Um, we think about other medications in our study like PCSK9 inhibitors that initially entered the market in 2016 at about $15,000 per patient and through some really historical uh, negotiation and price reductions that we'll describe uh, hopefully later in our conversation, the price went down to $5,000 per year. So is this affordable? Again, this is the key concept that each patient has, just like they have a unique clinical response to medication, they have a unique economic priorities, and it's up to physicians and patients to talk about this topic and go through shared decision-making. Uh, and lastly, we talked about DOACs, that despite being relatively older medication, they still present uh, and I'm here talking about U.S. estimates, uh, about $300 per month per patient, so $3,500 per year. So that's what affordability means to a patient. Now, affordability to the other stakeholder being the payer. Now, whether that's an insurance company or whether that's a government, and depends, of course, on the healthcare system. But affordability in this case boils down to what we define as budget impact. How do we conceptualize this idea? Well, we take the cost of the medication, and we multiply it by roughly all the patients that would be eligible to receive this medication based on the population that has been studied. So again, to dive into some specific examples, if we take um, 
for example, DOAX, our last example, about let's say $3,500 per year per patient, we multiply that by the about 12 million people, let's take the US, that are living with atrial fibrillation, the payer would face a budget impact of about $45 billion. Let's take the families that is more expensive, as we said, $225,000 per year. The eligible population would be around 12,000 or 15,000 people living with cardiac amyloid. Again, I use the US as an example. So if we multiply those, we get to a budget impact of $5 billion. So again, cost and prevalence of the eligible population comes into place. And of course, that becomes unique to each country uh, or each region that we're studying and the prevalence of the disease. I should jump in with saying that when we think about affordability from a patient's perspective, uh, it's not just that some of these drugs are unaffordable to the uninsured. Particularly in the U.S. market, we have um, a, a large number of uninsured or underinsured individuals who may face the full price of a new new therapy, uh, such as tafamidis or PCSK9 inhibitors, and might balk at paying that high high price. But affordability can even be a challenge for insured patients. So for tafamidis, for instance, the um, Medicare insurees who are the bulk of patients receiving tafamidis may face an out-of-pocket cost of eight to $9,000 per year. I mean, these are mind-boggling numbers for fixed-income seniors to suddenly cough up um, $9,000 a year for out-of-pocket costs. This may be unfamiliar to your listeners in um, that who are not based in the U.S., but this is unfortunately our reality. So thinking about affordability, both from the patient and the health system perspective, um, gives us a different lens on costs compared with cost effectiveness, which just takes this long-term view and says, well, this we should be paying for this drug, but affordability asks, can we? Yeah, and it, it, it's really interesting to hear both of those uh, terms discussed in the way that you've described. Can we just uh, have a little uh, jump into how new drugs are priced in in the first place? You, you mentioned uh, in your piece three uh, three different drugs, three different medications that at, obviously at the time they were released were new, with very different price points in the market. Can you give us, or do you have any insight into how the, the companies come up with those? those prices uh, in the first place? Let's take the US as an example. Yeah, the US is a, a very unique market because for most of the new drugs that are launched, it constitutes about 50% of the market, even though in terms of sales, even though it um, uh, is a much smaller market in terms of number of people compared with Europe or the rest of the world. Um, in um, Maybe I'll start with uh, Europe. Many of the Western European countries have systematic health technology assessment systems, um, including NICE in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and so the companies are uh, uh, have to price the drugs according to what value they generate for the healthcare system. They have to make a case that here's a new drug and we um, it, it generates five qualities and therefore it is priced at this price in the US, in the UK market. And then, of course, NICE has the, because of the power it has over the NHS uh, purchasing decisions, I should say influence it has over NHS purchasing decisions, um, is able to negotiate further. Because of this systematic negotiation, the UK prices tend for the same drugs tend to be about a third of the prices in the US. And uh, in contrast, the U.S. has, for the longest time, not had a formal health technology assessment 
uh, institution. And so companies are at uh, liberty to enter the market at whatever they think is a price the market will bear. This might depend on what the competitors are, what disease, uh, how much, uh, both in terms of that particular disease space, um, as well as, uh, you know, generics that might be available and whether they can convince clinicians to, to prescribe high cost medications. A particular challenge is what we call orphan drugs, drugs that have um, no uh, known therapies or effective therapies, and particularly when they affect rare uh, diseases, such as uh, those with fewer than 200,000 patients in, in the country. For those drugs, the companies really have substantial market power and are able to enter at very high prices. And that, that's the example of Tafamidus, where they made the case that transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis is a rare condition with fewer than 200,000 uh, Americans affected and were therefore able to enter at $225,000 a year, which at that time was the most expensive cardiovascular medication uh, ever approved in the US. Um, we shouldn't assume that high-income countries have higher prices and lower-income countries have lower prices. When you look across the board, that is not true. It is often a function of the market conditions and uh, regulatory power within the government and regulatory capacity, which explains why the UK has um, very uh, competitive prices compared with its peers, but many Central Asian countries, for instance, have higher prices because the market is poorly regulated. And just to clarify, in the US, the FDA is only concerned with approving these new drugs. It, it has no say in, in the subsequent price that's set by the companies. Is, is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. And so the FDA says, here's a drug that's um, uh, proven effective against a rare disease. And then it's up to the purchasers, often Medicare, which has limitations on how much influence it has on pricing, uh, to decide what the final price will be. There are negotiations. Very few payers are paying list prices, uh, and discounts can go down to 30 to 40%, but they're 30 to 40% of such a high benchmark that they still end up being substantially higher than the peers. For orphan drugs, because the market power of the pharmaceutical companies is substantial, discounts tend to be in the 5% range. So it, it, don't let anyone tell you, well, that's the list price. No one actually pays the price. For orphan drugs, that's actually pretty close to what what payers are paying. Wow, okay. Uh, do you think that drug prices will rise inexorably as the cost of clinical trials increases? My, my response to one part of that question is yes. Drug prices will continue to rise unless we have better systems in place to uh, regulate prices, particularly in the US where the system has been dysfunctional for decades. And a lot of money uh, goes into lobbying Congress to leave the status quo in place. Remember that uh, dysfunction is often profitable. And so it's not accidental that we have a system that does not regulate prices. What I'd like to clarify is that drug pricing has very little to do with the cost of clinical trials. Yes, cardiology trials are getting bigger and uh, more expensive to run as our um, you know, event rates go down. So you need larger sample sizes to prove that a drug works. But as you see that the most expensive drugs are the orphan drugs, which are, are increasingly quite small trials compared to coronary disease, et cetera. What the, the cost of clinical trials is doing is it's making it less economically interesting for companies to invest in cardiovascular innovation. And a lot of companies are pitching towards uh, oncology or other rare conditions because it's so much more profitable to be in that space. 
But unless we have in the US a better system to regulate drug prices, we're going to see price increases. That's really interesting. I hadn't made that connection that I assume most of the high cost of the of the drugs was because of the, you know, the billion dollar clinical trial that you now need to show a very small incremental reduction in events. That's that's super interesting to hear that. That's the industry's uh, uh, marketing. They'd like us to think <laughs> They've taken it's because me in. of the cost of the trial. Um, <laughs> the, I think the cost that they um, worry about is these large trials that end up being uh, where the drug is not effective. So that I, I shouldn't discount that. That is a, a cost. But particularly in the U.S., the major cost is marketing, customer acquisition, and then a, a whole bunch of money gets passed back on as dividends to the shareholders. Right, right. Um, anything else you would like to share, uh, Enrico or Dr. Kazi? Uh, where, where can people find out more about this fascinating area? Well, myself as a as a, someone of it is still in training and it's um, approaching this from a trainee and academic perspective. I found uh, certain you know textbooks to be particularly helpful to understand uh, cost effectiveness analysis and and gain that theoretical framework to either be myself a consumer of the literature or engage in these type of studies. And um, uh, there is a book uh, titled Decision-Making in Health and Medicine um, by Miriam Huning and Milton Weinstein that has accompanied me as I uh, gain an understanding of this complex but important topic. And perfect. Anything else you'd like to add, Dr. Kazi, before we wrap up? I would say that For the longest time, we as cardiologists have thought that our primary responsibility has been to follow the clinical evidence and provide the most effective therapies, devices, drugs to our patients. But we've got to realize that if if our patients cannot take them, cannot access these medications, then it doesn't matter how effective they are in clinical trials. They won't work in the real world. And so I think we have to expand our responsibility towards our patients to include uh, costs and understanding not just how much the drug and device costs the system, but how much it costs our patients. Particularly in the US, the cost uh, can vary from month to month. And so making discussions about costs and affordabilities, it, it doesn't have to be a long conversation, but a brief conversation with our patients about hey, are you having any challenges paying for your medications? Do you worry that you won't be able to take your medications uh, because of the costs you have to bear? We should just make that part of our routine clinical practice. And once every quarter or so, have that conversation with our patients so that we can preempt any cost-related non-adherence coming down the pike. Fantastic. And what I'll do is make the article uh, free to everybody to read for a few weeks after the podcast comes out. Um, what's the best way to, to, to get hold of you guys and follow what you do? Are you on social media, Twitter, websites? Anybody want to go ahead and, and give those details out? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. It's probably just easiest to look me up. It's at Cardiology Kazi, uh, Cardiology with a K. Um, Perfect. Corny, but it seemed like a good idea at that time. Absolutely. And Dr. <laughs> Farrow, uh, you're on Twitter as well? Similarly, yes, I am also on Twitter and happy to continue this conversation uh, through that platform. My uh, username is Enrico Farrow, MD. Uh, I try. Less creative, I guess. No, no, it, it definitely works. It definitely works. Well, I want to thank you guys very much uh, for talking to me today. It's been a real education for me and hopefully for all of the listeners. And I'll certainly direct everybody to read the show notes where the link to the paper will be included. And uh, yeah, thank you both for your time. Thank, thank you very much for having us. Thank you.